Thanks for joining us this morning. My name is Vicki. I'm the women's director here at Missio. And we've been in the book of Philippians, which I, I love the book of Philippians. But I will admit that this week, working on this talk, it's been rough. It's been real rough. And um, I think part of it is just that um, there's so many good things in the book of Philippians that I want to share all with you. And I'm like, I, wanna, I want you to see the connections from chapter one when he says this to chapter two. And, you know, like there's so much richness and beauty in this letter that Paul writes to the Philippians. I want to share it all with you. And it started looking like a three-hour talk. And I kept rewriting it, trying to shorten it and trying to say, okay, well, maybe we'll leave that for next time and let's focus in on this and let's, but there's this good thing and I want to bring that in and I want to give this example for this. And, and by last night, I was like, I want to burn this whole thing down and start over again. It's not what you want to do on Saturday night before you have to preach on Sunday morning, but it was like that. And so I was just feeling stuck. I was feeling stuck in the talk, and I was like, I just, I'm having a hard time here. It's been a struggle like this all week long. And I go, and I'm putting my kids to bed, and I'm praying for them, and my older son, um, you know, asked for more prayer afterwards because, of course, he always wants more, right? So he's like, pray for my legs. They're feeling sore. You know, I might need crutches tomorrow. He went skiing yesterday, you know. It was, was Yeah. Of course, he needs crutches. Yeah, so anyway, we're praying for him. And when I had prayed for my kids, I, I, after I prayed for them, I prayed for myself with the process of the talk because I was like, God, just give me the wisdom or like help me with this talk, right? And so they, were, they heard me pray for that. And afterwards, as I was just praying for Augie, he chimed in and he prayed for me for my talk that, you know, God would help me. And then he looks at me, and he holds my face in his hands, and he says, you are not perfect. <laughs> and it wasn't like a, um, you are not perfect, you know, which I get that too. But he just, in this moment of gentleness, said to me, you are not perfect. And I was like, you are right. I just needed to hear that. I'm not perfect, and this talk is not perfect, and no matter how much I fiddle with it, it is never going to get to the place that I want it to, and I feel so frustrated about that, and I feel so stuck in that, that I want to either start over again and again so that it can be perfect or just give up, and so it was, whether or not he meant it or not, it really just... It was a pastoral moment my son gave to me, right, of just speaking the truth to me, of saying, hey, it's okay. It doesn't mean that you stop. It doesn't mean that you don't keep trying, but it also means that what you're aiming for, that's not, that's not the invitation for you today, you know? And so um, that's, that is such a relief. And I hope that as we talk more about um, what... Paul is saying to the Philippian church um, that you would hold that in your heart, that God knows that we are not perfect, right? And in fact, that's where we're picking up here in verse 12. In Philippians 2.12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? That, that is where we're picking up. That there is an invitation to keep working at our salvation, keep trying, keep doing what it is that helps us practice our faith and our transformation. But the reason why we're able to do that is because at the end of the day, we're in charge of our transformation. We are not in charge of our transformation. It is God who is the one that's going to do it. And in fact, in chapter 1, in Philippians, he says, God who began a good work in you will not stop until he has completed it. And so there gives, it gives us this freedom not to just lie there and be like, okay, God, just work on me. I'm not going to do anything. But he actually says, I want you to be part of this transformation with me, but just know that you're not going to be perfect at it, and that's okay because I am, and I am going to complete the work in you. And so that, that is the invitation for us. That is the invitation for us that even in the freedom of us not being perfect, we still get to partner with him. We still get to work it out. We still get to not give up because God is doing a better work and a deeper work in us. And so if I was to say what is the thesis in the letter of the Philippians, um, it is this. Live lives worthy of the gospel. He says this in verse 27 of chapter 1. And then he gives himself as an example. He gives Christ as an example. And then later we're going to see that he gives two other people as an example of what it looks like to live lives worthy of the gospel. Now, when you hear something like big like that, you're like, live lives worthy of the gospel. What does that mean, right? Like, I want to do that, but I have no idea what that means. And so we are given examples of that in Jesus and in Paul. And the connection is this that they did what was better for others than for themselves. In every example that is given, you see someone choosing someone else's needs and desires above their own. Even if they were entitled to it, even if they had every right to hold on to those needs and their own desires, they decided to empty themselves of that and put others before themselves. And that's what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. And we see Jesus doing this, emptying himself, it says, taking the form of a servant. He chose to be present among us at his own cost, at his own great cost, right? So it goes on to say this in 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, the first practical thing he says here is do all things without grumbling or complaining. And at first sight, that does not seem to connect to regarding others better than yourself, right? What does that have to do with complaining or grumbling? But when you think about it, if you are thinking about others' needs before your own, others' time before your own, then it erases a lot of complaining and disputes, right? It's easy to find reason to complain. Complaining and being cynical is part of our society. It's what makes us alive, right? We could go into a room and we'd be like, what is up with the dirty dishes? Do they think that their time is more precious than mine? Do I look like they're made, right? In your head or aloud, right? Or you could be thinking in your work, I wish he would do his job. 
because it just makes my job harder, and now I have to do my job and his job. Or she hasn't texted me back, and maybe we aren't that great of friends. I'm just going to do my own thing and silently punish her. Right? There are easy ways that in our heads we are complaining or disputing or having a one-way conversation.、Um, I was driving with my mom, and、um, there was like traffic where you were like inching along, like that kind of painful traffic, and everybody was in their lanes, just inching along. And here comes this car, weaving in and out, squeezing in, trying to get ahead, like three cars ahead of me. Right? Like, what are you doing, buddy? Like, do you really think that you're gonna get to your place faster? Do you really think that who you are is way more important than everybody else that is just trying to get where they're going, sitting in traffic? Like, are you so much more important than everybody else? You know? And I feel the temperature rising in me. I am getting hot, right? And my mom, who's sitting next to me, just said, "Wow, that guy must really have to poo." And I was like, "What?" And it just kind of shook me out of my anger, right? Like, because what do I know of his situation? Maybe he does have to poo real bad, right? I just assume the worst, right? I make it about him being selfish, about just being, you know, like inset, like in, insensitive to everybody else's needs and concerns.、Um, and and my mom's right. I have no idea what his situation is, right? And it diffused me in a moment. But I wonder, right? Like, what are what what it would be like if we were people who just gave people the benefit of the doubt, and we were generous with grace, and we just put other people's needs and their opinions and and who they were before ourselves, and allowed that to take up space, right? What would relationships look like? What would the workplace look like? What would our schools look like if we did that? Complaining and disputing is a good litmus test for our hearts and our minds, and whether or not we are having the mind of Christ that puts others before ourselves. Now, in chapter nineteen, it says this: "I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare." For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come, will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Paul here is giving two examples of people who are living their lives worthy of the gospel. We see Timothy, 
whom if you have read very much of scripture would know that he is a disciple of Paul. There are two epistles in the New Testament written to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. That's the Timothy we're talking about, right? Timothy, who leaves his family and his city and all that he's ever known to go with Paul to all these other cities and to spread the good news of Jesus, to plant churches. And guess what? We don't think a lot about this, but Timothy goes with Paul to all these places. We hear a lot about Paul's persecution, about his um, imprisonment, about his stoning, about people shouting at him, kicking him out. Um, Timothy was with him on all of those things. So he was experiencing all that persecution as well. And yet he decided it's worth it for my life to be laid out so that more people, many more people know Jesus. Um, uh-oh. <laughs> I was like, oh. Um, so we see Timothy. He's mentioned in numerous places, and he has sacrificed everything to be a missionary, right? He is well recorded in scripture. He reaches many people, And then we're given the example of Epaphrodites, who is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture other than here. But Paul honors him, and he calls him my brother, my fellow soldier and worker, right? He is sent as a messenger to Paul, who is on house arrest. He's imprisoned in Rome because he's been sharing the good news of Jesus. And so he's not able to go out and make a living, and support himself. He is limited in his ability to just do the everyday life stuff, right? Like the errand running, the grocery shopping, the cleaning and the cooking and all of those different things. Um, It's said by um, some commentators that in house arrest, he might have had a short chain that was tied to a fellow soldier or, or to a soldier. And so not that he couldn't do everything, but he definitely was limited in what he could do. And so it said that Epaphrodites was sent to Paul as a messenger and minister to his need. Now, what was, and it says this in verse 30, he says he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, so the question is, what was lacking in the Philippian service to Paul, right? They sent money. They were generous in their giving to make sure that Paul was like supplied for his every need right? They wrote him letters. They loved him. They adored Paul and prayed for him. So what was missing in their service for him? Only this, their physical presence, right? And so they say, I'm going to send Epaphrodites, our best, our brother, to go and be the hands and feet of us because we would all love to be there and take care of Paul, but we can't. And so Epaphrodites, would you go and carry the love and demonstrate it in just the everyday menial tasks to love him well so that we would be, we would know that he's loved and cared for in that way. And so he goes, and I'm sure he isn't chosen because of his errand running prowess or his skill in cleaning toilets. I'm pretty sure that he's overqualified for the job that he goes for. And yet it is out of love. And we do many things below our entitlement out of love, don't we? We do. And um, so a couple of years ago, my son Augie, the you are not perfect Augie, right, like who said that to me, um, he had to go in for an eye surgery. Um, And he was seven then. 
and we explained the whole procedure. We, we explained what was going to happen. He was not going to have to stay in the hospital, but he was going to have to go under. He wasn't going to feel any pain, you know, all of that. And um, he was fine with it. He felt a little anxious, but he was okay. Um, and then the day comes for him to have the surgery. And we go in there. And, you know, first the doctor comes in, make sure we're okay, and we understand the procedure, check in on Augie, and, and then the anesthesiologist comes in and, and it's like, hey, hi, you know, like, nice guy, you know, introduces himself, asks if we have any questions, no, we don't, Augie's feeling okay, the nurse comes in and says, hey, um, I'm the one that's going to bring Augie into the OR to make sure that he goes under well and everything, and, and we knew that we weren't going to be able to go into the OR with him, that he was going to be totally awake, he was going to have to go into the OR, and then they were going to put him under, and then we couldn't be in the OR, um, and that we again communicated that to him and he was like, I'm fine, you know, but as more people have come in, he starts inching closer and closer to me until he is in my lap and he's clinging to me and he's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And you can tell he's starting to freak out. Right. And understandably, we'd never done a surgery on him before. Like this is scary to go under, not know any of these people as nice as they are to go into a place where, you know, you know that they're going to do some stuff to your eyes and not know any of these people and not have your parents in there with you. It's terrifying, right? And so Birch and I are like, it's okay. You know, like, you know, these are your anxieties, but it's going to be fine. Did you see, you know, like, oh, look at all the animals on the walls, you know, like trying to distract him. We're trying to bribe him. We're praying for him. Um, and here's the thing. We have some friends at Casey right? Um, and our friend Pete had come that morning um, to just say hi and check in and see how we were doing. And Pete's watching this whole interaction happening. He sees Augie's terror. He's seeing us do our best, knowing that we can't go in there. And it's tearing me up. Like, it's tearing my heart up to know that he's terrified and I can't do anything about it. Like, the only thing I can do is cancel the surgery, but that's not going to be the best. But I know I can't go in there, and he's terrified, and I'm stuck, right? And in the midst of all of that, Pete shows back up, and he's in his surgical scrubs. And he says, hey, buddy, what if I go in there with you? Would that be okay? And Augie, who's known Uncle Pete his whole life, you know, like, who's played at his house, been with his, his um, kids, um, He's like, okay, yeah. And so Pete has to carry him. He won't even be led by the hand. He carries him into the OR. Um, and it is Pete, right? It is Pete who um, didn't have to do any of that that goes in and makes the difference, right? He took the place of what we would have done as parents if we could have. Augie needed someone that he trusted implicitly who could love him and demonstrate to him what his parents could have done, would have done. Pete didn't do the surgery. He wasn't involved in any aspect of it. There were other people who were skilled and gifted who were doing that and were, were so grateful for that, right? But only Pete could have done what was necessary. And listen, he didn't have to, right? He could have just left it to us because he's not the parent. He could have said, I'm not the surgeon. This is not my thing here. I don't want to impose on what is happening. They have a procedure here, right? He could have just stopped by and said hi and said, I have a bunch of work waiting for me in my office. But he chose to step in. And I will never forget that. 
I will never forget the image of my son wrapped up in Pete's arms, relieved that our friend could love our son in that tangible and real way that we could not. That is what Epaphrodites did for Paul, what the Philippians could not do. And we don't always understand the bond that Paul has to the Philippian church, but there is such a fondness and a love that is communicated in this letter, and we don't always get that, but I think just seeing Epaphrodites and his risking his life for this, we maybe understand like a snippet of their love for one another. And, and, and that's, that's what it looks like to work out our salvation, isn't it? Exercising our surrender to Jesus to allow our hearts to be more like this. The example of Epaphrodites shows us that we can be present in the gaps, right? That there are gaps, that there is a gap between me and the OR, and Augie has to walk it. Unless somebody else chooses to walk it with him that has the access into the OR, that has access to surgical scrubs, right? When we are in a room and we are in a place, the question for us is, how do we be present in the gaps? How do we practice the power of presence in these places where some of these people have to walk it alone unless there is someone that is going to stand with them and sometimes carry them in this place because we have access in those places, right? We see that in Epaphrodites, in the love of the daily acts of small things, and we, I love that we see the juxtaposition of these two people, one who's given his life for the many and one who's just given his life for the one. And both of them are honored in the same way. They are both living their lives out worthy of the gospel, right? One is doing great things for the kingdom of God, planting churches, experiencing persecution. And the Epaphrodites, he's cleaning toilets, running errands, just making sure that Paul is taken care of. One person, and yet both are honored in the kingdom of God because their hearts and their minds are the same as Jesus, right? Putting someone else's needs and desires before your own. It isn't about qualifications, resources, or time. It is about whether or not we can put others before ourselves, right? And there is a power in presence, in staying even when you have nothing to say or can do nothing to fix the problem. There is a power in just being there. There's power in a meal brought to a new mom, but there's also power in washing her dishes while she takes a nap. There's power in sitting and holding the hand of a dying, just being present in the gap so that the family doesn't have to stand alone. There's power in saying, I'm so sorry, and nothing else to someone who is in grief and loss and just crying with them. There's nothing you can do you cannot bring that person back. But in that gap, I can sit with you. And I can be sad with you. Right? In its imperfection, in its incompleteness, that we would impose and sit still. Right? So many times, honestly, I am in my head, trying to figure out the right thing to say, the perfect thing to give. And I miss the opportunity to love and regard others better than myself because I am paralyzed about needing to be perfect or I don't want to be misunderstood or I don't want to impose. This is not my place, right? Surely somebody else is here to do this better than I can. I assume everyone else is good. Oh, you've got family coming into town? Great, you're taken care of. Oh, it looks like you've got a lot of friends here. Awesome, you've got this, right? 
And then I exempt myself from being present, even when that's what they need, right? My insecurity and my need for perfection is still all about me, right? It is not putting someone else before me. It's saying my insecurity and my need for perfection is more important than everyone else. And that selfishness stops me from fully paying attention and being present. Sometimes we just need to get out of our heads. Amen? We just need to get out of our heads. We just need to say, I'm bringing you a meal. (laughs) Not asking, do you need something? Right? Because I will say, as someone who is, you know, like has experienced grief and loss, I don't know how to answer that question. Do I need anything? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what I need. I don't even know what I'm thinking or feeling right now, right? So sometimes I think it is not my nature to impose, but sometimes I just need to say, I'm going to just drop this off, or I'm just going to come and sit with you. And I, you don't need to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. I just want to be present with you in this moment for a little while. And so as you enter in, As you enter into next week in a room at school or at home or as you enter into a situation at work or or just wherever you go, I want you to ask, what is lacking here? What is lacking here? And, And because we're given examples of people who have lived lives worthy of the gospel to say, what would Jesus do here? What would Epaphrodites do here? What would Pete do here? right? What would they do when they see the situation before them? How would they step in to a place that is lacking in something? And what can I do here? Certainly, there are so many gaps in our world right now where there is nothing we can do, right? But there are also sometimes things that we can do the small thing, and that's all we can offer. And that is enough for the day, right? To be able to say, I can't do 99.9 things, but I can do this one thing, and so I'm going to do it. I'm not going to be in my head and think about how it's going to be received, or I'm not going to think about whether or not that's a perfect solution for this person. I'm not going to think about um, whether or not it's going to be misunderstood. I'm just going to do it, right? The temptation when we go into situations is to criticize or complain or hide, and yet the word today from Augie is, you are not perfect, You're not perfect. But we try and work it out because God is doing a good and deep work in us, and we get to be part of that. And so as we work out our own salvation, we know that God is going to not stop until he finishes it. And that is a relief, right? We get to enter into places where people are hurting, where people are feeling lost, where people are feeling lonely, and we just get to be present in the gap. So I just want us to just sit for a moment and see who one that bring to mind for you. And maybe it is one person, or maybe it is a situation, or maybe it's something bigger than that. I don't know, right? But what is one place where there is something lacking? And then to ask yourself, what would Jesus do here? And what is God inviting me to do here? How can I be part of the solution? right? How can I bring presence into a place um, where there isn't the presence of God? Okay, so we're just going to sit for a moment, and then I'm going to pray for us.
God, thank you that you promise that you will not stop until you have completed your work in each of us. The brokenness, the ways that we strive, the ways that we long to be loved and seen and in control, God, that you are going to go in there and you're going to continue to transform us to be more like you until we're perfect. But we can't do that on our own. But you invite us to come in and as broken people to still be part of your plan, to still love and to still place other people's before ourselves and, and to um, step into places where um, it would just be easier to complain and criticize. Um, yeah, God, we just pray that you would make us people who are living lives worthy of the gospel, that we would have our eyes open to the hurt around us and the, and the pain, and that we would not run and hide. Um, yeah, God, I, just, I, I pray for each person that you are bringing up in our hearts and our minds today, and God, would you help us be brave? Would you help us to step in? Would you help us to practice um, being the presence? Um, yeah. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you are going to do in all these places of brokenness. We pray this in your name. Amen.